Good morning. Our second reading is from 1 Samuel 24. In fact, it's all of 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the King. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have, been, you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my, see my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said, you have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands and you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home 
But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Here ends the reading. If you'd like to keep your Bibles open at 1 Samuel 24, that's the passage we're going to be looking at in a bit more detail now. And as David said, we're going to have a chance for questions that might come up out of that. So if any questions come up on the way through, uh, keep them in mind or maybe jot them down and um, you'll have a chance to ask that at the end after we sing. But let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we do ask that uh, as we spend this time in your word and hearing about David and and his uh, trust in you, that you will give us that same kind of trust. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems to me that it's one thing to trust God in the big things of eternity, you know, heaven and hell, eternal salvation. That's obviously important. You know, that's, that's what we're on about. Nothing could be more important than that. But at the same time, a vital part of that trust is learning to trust God, not just with that kind of final destination, but also learning to trust him along the way, on the journey. Trusting God's path and God's timing as well as that final destination. Even if that path is not the one that we might choose for ourselves. Even if that path turns out to be a difficult one. That's what trusting God involves. And I've walked beside plenty of people, and in fact even for myself, where you think, surely this difficulty is not what God would have in mind for me. Surely this is not what God would want. Surely it should be easier than this. You know, if God loves me, if God wants what is good for me, how can this, what I'm going through now, be a part of it? I wonder if you can identify with that, maybe right now, maybe some previous time in your life. I'll tell you, one person who certainly could identify with that, surely, is David, who we've just been hearing about. Surely, in his years on the run for his life from King Saul, surely here those ideas must have crossed his mind more than once on those days. And in this passage today, David had the opportunity to change the path that he was on a change that would have given him the very thing that God had promised he would give him, the destination that God had promised he was heading towards, but it would have got him there by a much easier path, a much quicker route. It would have been a shortcut to glory for David. And as we follow David in this situation, I think it it gives us actually quite a helpful insight into also what Jesus went through. And at the same time, it becomes an example for us. And so our passage today, as we look at it now, opens with an opportunity that is almost too good to refuse. As I said, David is a fugitive on the run through no fault of his own at all. The fear and jealousy and anger of King Saul has made David public enemy number one. And Saul is doing everything he can to capture and kill David, even to the point of killing entire towns of people who he suspects of helping David. And you might remember, if you were here last week, that last week the chapter ended with a dramatic chase scene through the mountains where Saul nearly, very nearly caught David. And we see him gradually getting closer and closer and closer until just at the moment when he nearly caught him, Saul was called away to fight against the Philistines because they were invading the land. And so David lives to fight another day, literally. And that other day, it seems, 
is today in chapter 24. And you see, right at the beginning of chapter 24, Saul picks up exactly where he had left off, pursuing David relentlessly. And again, he is getting very close, extremely close, we're going to discover. But but on this day, the tables are turned. You know, Saul had a massive numerical advantage in his army against David's men. He had a five-to-one advantage, 3,000 men for Saul and only 600 men for David. But somehow, in this moment, David finds himself with an unexpected tactical advantage, a silver bullet opportunity, you could say. He catches Saul with his pants down, literally. So the story goes, Saul took himself off for some privacy in a cave to relieve himself, we're told, but little did he know that that cave that he thought was private and out of the way was the very cave that David and his 600 men were hiding in the back of. But instead of Saul coming there with his 3,000 strong army, Saul is there by himself, completely unsuspecting, completely unprepared, completely unprotected. I mean, who would have thought that he would need his bodyguard to go to the toilet? Well, David's men see this for the opportunity that it is. This is the chance for David to end all of his problems in one single moment. All the running, all the hiding, all the fearing for his life. This is David's chance to bring that to an end. And David's men see it, as I said, as exactly that. And and not just as a kind of lucky circumstance, lucky coincidence, they see it as a gift from God. This is God, they said, giving you exactly what he said he would. Have a listen to the the whispers of encouragement that David's men give to David when they discover the remarkable situation that has kind of fallen into David's hand. Look at verse 4. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to do with as you wish. This is God giving him into your hands. It it would certainly seem like that, wouldn't it? Now, to be clear, God had never said those words to David exactly. I will give your enemy into your hands to do with as you wish. He hadn't said those words. But you can understand the men's sentiment, right, in, in, in assuming that. Back last week in chapter 23, God did promise to give the Philistines into David's hands, and he did. And now Saul has made himself as much an enemy of David as the Philistines ever were, and so you can see an easily correlation. God will give the Philistines into your hands. God will give your enemies into your hands. Saul is your enemy. This is God who is giving him to you. Surely God is removing Saul from the throne and placing David on the throne, this is God doing it. So David's men have interpreted this situation through that, through that context and they've come to a natural, you could say, conclusion. God has given him into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now go, David, and do that thing that you know you want to do. This man has devoted all his energy to killing you. It is time to bring that to an end. This is what God wants for you. You've got to admit it would be a pretty convincing argument, right? Everything about this situation that David was in was bad. It was bad for David, it was bad for his men, 
It was even bad for the nation as a whole. It was hardly good to have a nation whose king was so hell-bent on killing one man that he devotes the entire resources of, of the army to trying to kill him for his own personal vendetta. In fact, wiping out whole towns along the way. This was a chance to change all that. However way you look at it, you could make a pretty good argument that everyone would be better off with Saul out of the picture. Surely this is what God would want. And so with all that running through his mind, David creeps forward from his hiding place in the back of the cave, sword in hand to the place where Saul was there relieving himself. Saul is completely unaware, completely unprotected. It could not have been easier. And David reached out and cut off, and I wonder what we expect to read at the end of that sentence. What did he cut off? His head? His life? No, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And that is all. And Saul went on his way, unaware and unharmed. So what could have been a pivotal moment in David's life on the run ends up seeming like, you'd have to say, something of an anticlimax. And we can only imagine what David's men must have thought of this wasted opportunity. We don't know what they thought, but we do actually know what David thought. He was conscience-stricken. David was conscience-stricken. And you see that at the beginning of verse 5. And my thought is, when I read that, is I think, why? Why was he conscience-stricken? He barely did anything. He certainly didn't do the thing that we thought he was going to do, right? And he didn't do the thing that his men thought he should do. But I think David's stricken conscience shows us the significance of the action that he nearly took. See, David's action there had a symbolic significance. As David reached out to cut off the king's robe, it was symbolic of reaching out to take the kingdom by force. Let me explain what I mean. You might remember, if you've been following the story with us throughout the time we've been doing it, right back in chapter 15, when the prophet Samuel told King Saul that God was removing the kingdom from him. God had rejected him as king over Israel and Saul became desperate. And he grabbed hold of Samuel by the robe. And as Samuel turned away, it tore. And Samuel used that moment and he said, you know what? God is tearing the kingdom from you. Tearing the robe was symbolic of tearing the kingdom from Saul. And now David has done that very same symbolic action. He has reached out and cut off the king's robe. And symbolically, it was like reaching out to grasp hold of the kingdom and cutting off the kingdom by force from Saul. And so David was conscience-stricken. He said, I don't, wanna, I don't want it to be like that. Whatever Saul was doing, however badly Saul had acted, however justified David might have felt, Saul was still God's anointed king over God's kingdom. And David knows that it is not his place to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, whether symbolically or actually. And so he says exactly that to his men in verse 6. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, 
or to lay my hand on him, for he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. See, David's own conscience rebuked even his symbolic grasping, and even more so, it rebuked his men's desire to kill Saul and to take the kingdom by force. Yes, God had promised to put David on the throne in place of Saul. David knew that. David knew that's what was coming in his future. But even in his symbolic act of grasping, David realises that this is not the way it should happen. It is not his place to reach out and take the kingdom by force in his own timing, in his own way as much as it seemed like this was God handing it to him on a silver platter. This well-meaning and completely understandable advice of his men was wrong. And David knows it. And so his conscience pricked him, even in this symbolic action. But even though David's conscience was pricked in this action, it also shows... David's innocence in that moment, David's innocence. Because the fact is that he didn't do the actual thing that his men wanted him to do, the thing that would have actually taken advantage of the situation. He didn't actually kill Saul. That's the the crucial thing that didn't happen in this moment. As I said, David knew that the kingship was entirely in the hands of the Lord and that it was the Lord's anointed, that the Lord's anointed was the Lord's anointed, it was for God to seal with Saul. Everything okay, Christian? Sorry, I just thought there might have been a problem. Uh, and, and, and so if you have a look at what David then says to Saul in verses 15, 12 and 15, you, you can see how David was putting his trust in the Lord rather than taking matters into his own hand. Have a look at what he says in verse 12 and 15. He says, May the Lord... Judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. May the Lord vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. See, I won't lay my hand on you. I will trust the Lord to do what he will do in his timing and in his way. And just take a moment to appreciate how significant that is, how big that is. If David had done the opposite of that and had taken this moment to take things into his own hands, it would have solved his problems in an instant. His running for his life, that would be at an end. The uncertainty and fear around every corner, that would be over. He could easily have justified that to himself. He could easily have justified that to everyone around him. His men already were convinced of it and were trying to convince him. This was God's gift to him. God has promised you the kingdom. Surely this is how you will get it. Surely this is what God wants. This could have been a shortcut to the glory that God wanted for David. This could have been a shortcut to the glory that God had promised. An easy way to get the very thing, the very good thing that God, in fact, wanted him to get. A shortcut to glory. It reminds me of a shortcut to glory as I think about that that my brother uh, did in high school. 
in the school cross-country carnival. It, it happened like this. My brother wasn't particularly renowned for his cross-country prowess, but this one particular year, he came home from school and declared that he'd done fantastically well and was now going to be representing the school at the next level of the competition. And we were like, wow, that's amazing. Isn't that fantastic? It wasn't until later on that we found out what had actually happened. See, the, the starter gun went off and everyone started running. And as, as soon as they got around the corner, my brother jumped a fence and went to his mate's house to go and play Xbox with his friends. He wasn't that interested in running across country. So they finished playing Xbox and then he jumped another fence and rejoined the race, not even realising that he rejoined the race at the front of the pack. And so he finished, the, finished across the finish line, somehow got away with it, and in our family the rest is history. <clears throat> now that kind of makes a funny story at, at, at family parties to, to think back on, but it's hardly the shortcut to glory, it's hardly the path that you would want God's anointed king to follow, Right? the shortcut that avoids the path that God has planned because it's easier, because it avoids the difficulty that God had planned for him. That's what David was unwilling to do. And thankfully, he didn't do it. He refused to take that shortcut to glory. Instead, he trusted God, not just with the end point that God had promised. Yes, God would put him on the throne. He trusted that, but not just that. He also trusted the path from here to there. He also trusted God's timing to get to there and what would happen along the way. And that example of trusting God was just a glimpse of what David's great descendant, Jesus, did on his path to glory. See, Jesus also knew that he was destined for glory. He was the Messiah, a king not just over one nation, but over the entire world. In fact, over the entire universe. That was his destiny. But he also knew that the journey to the throne was not going to be an easy one. That it would involve suffering and even death. And when he said that to his followers, just like David's men, they tried to convince him otherwise that he should have an easier path, a glorious path, not a painful one. And, you know, Peter in particular, Jesus', Jesus disciple Peter, took the lead in trying to convince Jesus away from this crazy idea that Jesus was on. You know, Peter had just realised realized that Jesus was himself the Messiah, but now Jesus is saying to Peter that his path would involve suffering and death before resurrection and glory. And you know what Peter did? He took him aside like a good friend and rebuked him and said, no, Jesus, that is not the way for you. Surely that is not how things are going to work out for you. But Jesus heard that advice for what it was. You know what he said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because that was exactly what Satan himself had tried to convince Jesus of not that long before. A path to glory that would involve the suffering of the cross. A shortcut to glory. What a temptation that must have been. The worst moment of his life, the worst moment of eternity, in fact, was still ahead for Jesus. And now even his, even his friends are telling him that's the path you should ta avoid. Take the easier path, just like David's friends did in the cave. But Jesus refused 
to give in to that temptation. He too trusted God's path and God's timing as well as the destination. And now Jesus is seated on that throne in glory and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But it was a path that involved difficulty and suffering. And Jesus says that it will be the same for us. For anyone who follows him, it will be the same. In fact, he says to us, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I live that experience, I find that a tough pill to swallow, a bitter pill to swallow. I I, I love the destination that God has promised. I love that future that God has promised, a, a perfect heavenly future a perfect world, a paradise with God and with each other, with no more tears and no more pain. What a wonderful future that God has in store for us. Never forget that. But why does there have to be so many tears and pain along the way? Surely if God wants what is good for me, then bad things now shouldn't be a part of that, right? It doesn't fit with where we're heading. Well, that wasn't the case for David. It wasn't the case for Jesus. And he also tells us that it's not the case for us either. And, you know, I'm not sure that there's a simple answer for why that's the way it is, but it's got to be something to do with learning to trust him in those moments, right? Learning to trust him. Just like David and Jesus needed to trust God, not just with the outcome, but also with getting there as well. Helping us to learn to trust God along the way. Trusting God's timing. Trusting God's path. As well as that wonderful destination. And you know, if we believe that, if we really take that to heart, then it should help, I think, to guard us from making the same mistake that David nearly made. That is, that we don't mistake the easy path or personal happiness as the measure for deciding what God wants for me. And again, I've heard and even said for myself, surely God wouldn't want this difficulty for me, this this hardship, this pain. Surely if God loves me and wants what's good for me, surely this is not it. I need to choose something else. And I've seen people using that as a way to justify distrusting God, disobeying what God says, and even walking away from God in that moment. That pain in marriage, perhaps, or in singleness, and using that to justify unfaithfulness or pursuing a relationship that God doesn't want us to. Surely God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. That's a powerful expression. Surely God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Or that financial stress that is weighing me down. Surely God wouldn't want this for me. And using that to justify ungodly financial choices. Yes, God wants only what is good for you. But couldn't it be possible that God in his infinite wisdom thinks that learning to trust him, even when things are difficult, is actually good for you and good for me? And so good for you that it's even worth 
some difficulty along the way. If only we would trust him with that. I wonder what difficulty there might be in your life that God is calling you to trust him in the midst of. Now, you may or may not see the goodness that will come because of that. But it may just be that the goodness is simply learning to trust God more in the midst of it. That God is so good that learning to put ourselves in his hand in trust is good in itself for us. Yeah, God really does have a wonderful future in store for everyone who trusts in his son Jesus through his death and resurrection and that hope that he has secured for us because of that. Jesus was the king who trusted his father, not just with the destination, but with every step along the way. And he wants us to learn to do the same. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, you know each one of us better even than we know ourselves. You know our circumstances, you know our hearts, you know our difficulties, and you know our joys. Father, help us to trust that you know what is good for us. And help us to trust you even in those moments where we feel that things are not the way that we would choose them to be. But trust that this is your good plan for us nonetheless. And so as a result, Father, help us to choose the thing that you've given us, uh, obeying where you have told us what to do, trusting where you have told us to trust. And we pray, Father, that you'll help us as a result to learn to rejoice in the goodness of being your loved and forgiven children as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.